0: Good morning, everybody, for sake of introduction, my name is Aaron Stern, if you're brand new with us, and with a series that we're starting today over the next several weeks, um, we're going to do something a little unique for us, and that is um, that we will begin every message with three scripture readings, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament,
1: and one from the Gospels. Hi, my name is Tomas Quinones. The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 119, verse um, 89 through uh, 96. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your law endures to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them I have preserved my life. Save me, I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but you will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see limit. But your commands your commands are boundless. My name is Beth Hallmark. The New Testament reading is from Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work.
2: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. My name is DeMonica Coleman, and the gospel I'll be reading from is Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know The things that have happened there in these days what things he asked about Jesus of Nazareth they replied he was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and what is more it is the third day since all this took place In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said and all the scriptures concerning himself. Please be seated.
0: <coughs> A little over 28 years ago, Jossie, my wife and I walked down an aisle at a church, and stood before a pastor, and said vows to one another, sickness and in health. And we committed our lives to one another and began a marriage. But our commitments on that particular day weren't just to stay married. Our commitments actually were to do all that we could do to have a healthy marriage. Because if we didn't do anything, it would either not survive or at best be anemic and very, very weak. The same is true for us as followers of Jesus. That we aren't just trying to stay saved. But we're actually trying to put the words and the ways of Jesus into practice. The beginning of this year, 2023, we started off the year by talking about a word for us for the year. And that word is practice derived from the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 where after Jesus talks about the kingdom manifesto, what it looks like to participate in and reflect the kingdom of God into the world. He ends it in chapter 7 by talking about a wise and a foolish disciple, a wise and foolish follower of him. They both hear his teachings but the difference between them is that one puts them into practice and the other does not. The one who does is like building their house on a rock. So when the storms come, they're not washed away. They stand strong. For the, the one who does not put the words of Jesus into practice is like building on sand. And when the storms come, there's no foundation. It washes away. And so we want to be people that put the words of Jesus into practice. So throughout this year, we've had a series that has come and gone around practice. We started off with practice community and the necessity that it is and the importance of walking with others in apprenticeship to Jesus, that it is part of our apprenticeship to Jesus and it helps cultivate and facilitate our apprenticeship to Jesus. We then had a series, Practice Generosity, talking about what it looks like for us to reflect an overly exuberant and abundant, generous God and how we live that out in our lives. Today, we're starting a series called Practice Scripture. What it looks like for the Scripture to be a part of helping us to put the words of Jesus into practice. We find in the Scripture the words of Jesus, but it isn't just about knowing them. It's about putting them into practice. Now, the Bible has always been central to the Christian church. It's the most popular book in history by far. And it's a point of controversy. It has split churches, split families, split families. And it has been treasured and protected. It has been sought after, memorized, and ingested. Throughout the, throughout the centuries, the scripture has been used and abused. It has been hidden and debated and burned. It has been vilified. It has been torn up by scholars and put to back together again by other scholars. It has been preached from. It has been preached against. It has been placed on a pedestal. It's been trampled underfoot. It's been weaponized and politicized. So because of all of these things, we, some of us in this room might actually have a bit of a complicated relationship with the bible. And we might find a lot of answers but also find ourselves with a lot of questions. I mean, what is it with this talking snake? Or there seems to be aspects of the bible that 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 promote genocide or 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 what about dead raisins? I mean, like like dead not dead raisins, but like dead people being raised from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons that there's issue and the complication is because, because the Bible is seen by Christians as authoritative. Right? It's not just any other book. Like, oh, I like that book, I don't like that book. Oh, yeah, I read that book. That was a really good one. I don't really care for that one. But we see it as authoritative, which means that it has a special place, it, it has a special weight. Now, when we say authoritative, I think it's important to clarify what that means. In Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he gives what we know as the Great Commission to his followers. And he starts off by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't say all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to the books you all will write. Right, Which means that the Bible, in and of itself, as a, the, a book, isn't authoritative. The authority of Jesus is exercised through the Bible. So the, the, the Bible reflects something of God, and because of what's in it and who is in it, it carries authority. Now for some of you, maybe in this room, because we live in 2023 in a secular culture, authority is like, you got sweaty palms. You're like, oh man. Because we live in a world where nobody tells me what to do. We live in a world where our highest authority comes from inside That's what's proposed and what's celebrated by our culture. So to think of an authority coming from outside of ourselves isn't the norm and isn't the cultural narrative of our day. So as we start this series and as we talk about the Bible today, I want to start by talking about first what the Bible is not. And the reason I want to talk about what it's not Is because for many of us, including myself, I heard ways of approach that didn't always serve me well. And as I've learned more about the scripture, the more I've understood the best approach to the Bible. Because approach matters. If we approach something from the wrong premise, then everything that follows will be off. For example, if I approach playing football like it's a swim meet... Then it won't matter how well I swim, right? I'm going to miss all that comes with playing football. In other words, I mean, can you imagine Michael Phelps, greatest swimmer in the world, and he comes out with a speedo and a you know a, a hair head covering thing like that's not a helmet. He is going to get demolished, no matter how great of a football player he is, or excuse me, a swimmer he is, right? And if he play, you know, he's only going to run in a straight line. He's going to wave his arms while he does it, and he's going to keep his head down. So the approach matters. And if our approach to the Bible is off, it will also put us to not experience what we're supposed to be experiencing in its fullness. So to start off, I want to say that the Bible is not a list of rules. God's primary interest isn't rules. There were some amazing rule keepers in the Bible Specifically in the Gospels, we have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with whom Jesus was the most harsh because he was pushing against their notion that rule-keeping was the bottom line. But life with God isn't a legal contract built on duty. Life with God is a relational covenant built on delight. And if we think that it's a legal contract built on duty, what that can lead us to is manipulation. To think that we can manipulate God to do what He wants, or what we want Him to do if we do what He wants. But the reality is, is that we want to do what God wants out of a a love for Him. And the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus It's not that we're bad and we need to be gooder, better, right? Because if that's the case, you and I can all work a little harder and become a little more disciplined to become a little better. The reality in the message of the Bible is that you and I are dead. And you know what you can't be? A little less dead. You're either dead. Or you're not. And the reality of the scripture is a story about God bringing us to life. So so not bad to good, which would be about rules. It's about us being brought to life. And because of being brought to life, let me say that there are guidelines in the scripture that are important. There are ways that God would say this is the best way to live. But it's not primarily that, and that is something that we would want to hopefully walk in as a result of coming alive and saying, wow, I'm alive, and look what you did, and I want to follow you. So how does it look to live and live out this aliveness? The Bible is also not an encyclopedia of spiritual principles, you know, where you kind of, let's see, um, F, 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 I. Finances. There it is. How to have good finances. Right? Or T, 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 A, and tantrum. How to get them to go away. Um, (laughs) If you're a parent. (laughs) Or H, 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 O, hot date. Right Or how to have a strong marriage. It's, if we approach the Bible that way, it's kind of like, like, like reading it like it's like how to win friends and influence people. Right? Are there, is there wisdom in this book about finances and about how to, how to raise kids and all that? Yes. But it is not primarily a self-help manual. It is not primarily a book that is about how to do life in that way. And it doesn't break down the details of those things. Oftentimes, it's principles based on who God is and how he's made us. There is wisdom in the Scripture. But that is not primarily what the Bible is about. The Bible is also not a book of heroes. The Bible is not a collection of stories laced with flawless superheroes. Actually, we'll only find one. But instead, we'll find people like Noah the drunkard, or Jacob the liar, and Rahab the prostitute, and Solomon the polygamist. Are these the people after whom we are trying to model our lives? No, the the Bible, though, doesn't hide humanity. It doesn't hide the brokenness of the world. Now, that, on one hand, might be a bit disheartening, because we love to have things cleaned up. But it also, hopefully, is a bit comforting that we then can see ourselves in the Scripture. See, because when we, when we clean things up, we actually make things too simple. We love the story of David and Goliath and the way that David killed the giant, but then we leave out the fact that David was an adulterer and a murderer. What is? Where's the Bathsheba bobblehead, you know? The Bible is also not a collection of pick-me-ups. You know, the coffee table book or the chicken soup for the soul, kind of the, oh, I need a the espresso shot, like I need a jolt for today. I'm a little discouraged, a little, a little down. I need a little, like, like, encouragement. There is encouragement in the Bible, but, but oftentimes if that's the only thing that we see or if that's the only thing that we w- want from it or think that, is there then we miss passages about job and his painful losses and and naked noah <laughs> or the words of jesus in this world you will have trouble so often the things that we pull out of the scripture we might put on a little like board picture frame thing over the mantle when was the last time you saw in this world you will have trouble jesus right over somebody's mantle It's a promise. And you walk in and you're like, oh, I got to (laughs) go. And yet the Bible is a message of hope. And is filled with encouragement. But sometimes the encouragement isn't in a pithy saying. Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message translation or paraphrase of the Bible, wrote in a, a book that he wrote called Eat This Book. He says, it is entirely possible to come to the Bible in total sincerity, responding to the intellectual challenges it gives or for the moral guidance it offers or for the spiritual uplift it provides, and not in any way have to deal with a personally revealing God who has personal designs for you. Not everyone who gets interested in the Bible and even gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with God. See, all these approaches that I mentioned... There's aspects of them, but it's important that we recognize that that this is not what the Bible is primarily. And if we think that this is what the Bible is primarily, we end up treating the Bible as a product. And our culture loves to turn things into a product. And so that we are trained to ask the question in anything and everything that we do, did I like it? Did it entertain me? Did it meet my needs? We certainly can do this with approaching the Bible, or it could be in approaching church. Hmm, you know, worship 8.5. But the Bible is not a product to be used, but a story to be entered. So what is the Bible? There's a, it is a story. I want to just expand on that a bit as we say, okay, so what is the proper approach? First of all, the Bible is a l- library of writings inspired by God, telling a unified story with Jesus at the center. Let me break that down just a little bit. The Bible is a library of writings, meaning the Bible is not a book. Now, what I mean by that, now this, you're like, Aaron, what you have in your hand is a book. It has a cover. What I mean by that is it is not one author writing one story from beginning to end. The difference between maybe reading a, a book by one author and going to the library is significant. Why? Because when you go to the library, you know that you're reading different authors from different centuries, from different places around the world in different genres. And so as a result, depending on what you read or what you pull off the shelf, you're going to read in a different way. And the same is true for the Bible. Sixty-six different as we would call them, books, but writings collected into one book. Did you know that 33% of the Bible is poetry? Poetry doesn't get read the same way as we read narrative. So we have poetry, we have narrative, we have song, we have apocalyptic literature. All that requires a bit of a different approach, a different understanding, a different way of relating and interpreting. It's written over 1,500 years by multiple people in different places of the world with different socioeconomic portion, uh, place in the world. So therefore, it's different ways of looking at the world, ways of different looking at life. And so because of the diversity of the genre and the time and the place, it means then that as we read through the Bible, there's going to be different ways in which we approach it. Inspired by God, there's writers like Moses, and there's writers like David, and there's writers like uh, uh, Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus didn't write any of the Bible, it's all about him, uh, Luke, and Matthew, and Mark, and Paul, and Ezra, and so many others. But though they're writers of the Bible, it, they didn't fall into a trance and go like this and wake up and say, wow, that's really good. Instead, it, I, it's kind of like a, like 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 a musician playing a saxophone. Like, which one makes the music? The saxophone, or the musician? The answer is both. It's this partnership, where with this beautiful instrument and this talented musician, there's a way that they work together, and without one or the other. The music doesn't happen, and the same thing is true of Scripture. That it's this partnership where God is the breather, and yet we are the instrument, with, and through which, or these writers are the ones through which He writes and communicates His message. In some ways, it's a bit of a picture of Jesus, humanity and divinity all in one place. Inspired by God, it says that Scripture is God-breathed, as we, meant, as we heard in the New Testament reading out of Timothy. God-breathed. God was the one breathing in and through. And even though there are so many different writers and so many different types of writing and all of that, it's, it's not a collection of disconnected morality stories. It is actually, in a profound and a beautiful way, a bunch of micro st- stories telling a macro story of the world. You can break that down into three specific kind of or basic ideas, and that's creation, decreation, and recreation. Or to unpack that just a little bit further, it is that God, in the beginning of the world, created a world out of chaos. And as he created this beautiful world, he said, this is good. He delighted in it. And everything was as it was supposed to be. But humans rebelled. And out of their rebellion, invited sin and death into the world. God saw this, loved his creation too much to leave it as it was. And so he said, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and this is not the way it will always be. And so he initiates a rescue plan, chooses a family known as Israel or the Israelites. And he says, you are going to be the carriers of this cure and this message. Be faithful to me. We read throughout the entire Old Testament how they are not faithful in general to him. And by the end of the Old Testament, we know that the carriers of the cure are actually the ones in need of the cure themselves as well. But Jesus is part of that family line, and he comes, the New Testament breaks in, and we have Jesus communicating to the world what it looks like to live faithful to Yahweh. He is the one who does what the Israelites were supposed to have done. And he ultimately expresses the reality of what it looks like to love the world and for us to follow him by being giving of his life sacrificially on the cross. His life in line and aligned with the will of the Father and done out of love. Dying on the cross, going into the grave, three days later coming out of the grave, showing that death has indeed been defeated. Because what God did for Jesus on Easter, He will one day do for the whole world. He will bring all things into the way that it was supposed to be. All things will be made right. But we're not there yet because He has not come back yet. So we find ourselves in a portion of the story called The Church where we are the carriers of the message, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament. And so we are called to be faithful to God, faithful to Jesus, to follow him, be his apprentices, be like him, and do what he did. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we as followers of Jesus are to live now like it will one day be because of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. Because as it says in Revelation 21, that he will come back and he will make all things new. He will wipe every tear away. He will, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. There will be no more brokenness in the world. And that is a story of hope from creation to recreation. And that, my friends, is worth celebrating. That's full of hope. It might be full of ups and downs and brokenness and lack of heroes, and, and, but Jesus is the one that is the center of it all. Now you say, why does this matter? Because the story we live in is the story we will live out. If we live in a story ending, that will impact how we live that out today. See, we want to live the Scripture, not just believe the Scripture. Knowing God, not knowing more, is the goal of reading Scripture. See, we are not just interested in knowing more, but actually becoming more. So the question is for each one of us as we read the Scripture is, do we let it mess with us? Can it upset you and disrupt you? Or do you read it and you say, I hope my husband reads that. (laughs) See, are you reading the Bible or is the Bible reading you? See, because the practice of reading Scripture isn't just about information, it's about transformation. Transformation. A couple hundred years ago, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. That is so not true. But it has certainly permeated our understanding of life. See, if it were true, then, then we could just think about, think something and have it be true of ourselves. I wish it were true. But we are not brains with legs. We have a, have a heart and we have a body and we have to work things out. And they have to be embodied, not just thoughts. I'm going to read a quote from a Welsh Welsh pastor and theology professor named Jeffrey Thomas. He wrote a book called Reading the Bible. It's a bit long, but I want you to just pay attention because it's really powerful. He says, Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It is not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The Apostle Peter said that there were some things hard to understand in the epistles of Paul. I am glad he wrote these words because I have felt that often. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will be great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small, because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer, and then you will not need the Bible anymore. Because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in Scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Why do we read the Bible? To meet Jesus. To know Jesus. To walk with Jesus. To become like Jesus. To do what he did to not just know the bible the the god on a page but jesus in the flesh which takes consistency which takes perseverance and so our weekly practice this week is about immersing ourselves in the scripture For some of of you, this might be a new practice or a new thing to do. For others of you, this this might not be new, but maybe it's a a new way of doing this. And so we're going to immerse ourselves in the book of Ephesians, found in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. And so if possible today, if, if this schedule doesn't exactly work for you, feel free to adjust it just a bit, but read the entire book in one sitting. It's six chapters. It will take about 15 minutes. Then tomorrow on Monday, read chapter 1 slowly. On Tuesday, chapter 2 slowly. Wednesday, chapter 3 slowly, and so on, to where you you get to chapter 6 on Saturday. Now, if you miss a day, don't be like, well, I guess I'm done. Start again, even if you skip the chapter or you miss the next one or whatever. But just, we want to stay consistent. And you might do it with your roommates, you might do it with your siblings, you might do it with your family, you might do it by yourself, you might listen to it in the car, you might, there, you might listen to it and read it at the same time. There's lots of ways to do it. The goal is to get immersed, and as we just read in that quote, to let it wash over your heart and your mind. Now, for some of you, maybe you just took a picture of that, or maybe you just missed it, and... And so if you'd like to, uh, you can opt into the weekly practice text reminder, uh, where we will send out a text reminding you of the practice for the week. Because I know how it is, sometimes Sunday afternoon you're like, wait, what was that? Let alone by Wednesday. So, So if you'd like to sign up, if you're not already, sign up for the weekly practice reminder and we will text that to you and then you'll have it right there on your phone. We do this not just because, oh, this is somehow such a good idea. Actually, Jesus did it. Jesus was immersed in Scripture. Jesus was so immersed in Scripture that when he was tempted by the devil after not eating or drinking for 40 days, you know what spilled out of him? Scripture. When Jesus found himself teaching about the sermon, uh, teaching the, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, you know what spilled out of him? And his, the Sermon on the Mount is packed full of Scripture. When Jesus is on the cross, you know, it's built out of him, Scripture. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, talking to some downtrodden disciples, you know, it came out of him, the Scripture. If you notice, many of those scenarios are tough. Many of the scenarios were not easy. I think it's important for us that when we find ourselves in difficult situations, that what comes out of us is the truth of God's Word. Because we want to live into an alternative story. A story that is different than the story that's being fed to us by the world that says, it's all about you. When in fact, God says, no, it's not all about you. It's all about me. And by it being all about me, then it's actually going to have the greatest impact on you and all of creation. The you story is a really small story. The God and Jesus, who's the hinge pin of all of history, is a grand cosmic story that you can participate in. And Jesus at the center is the reason that during the gospel reading we stand. Not because the rest of the scripture is not important or not authoritative, but it it just highlights the ways in which Jesus is at the center of it all, which can be lost. John chapter 5, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. All of the Bible points to Jesus. Several years ago when our boys were young, we bought the Jesus Storybook Bible Some of you might be familiar with this. We actually give this to all of the families who dedicate children here at Mill City. And and when Jossie and I first started reading it um, with our boys, we would oftentimes be the ones with eyes full of tears at the end and finding it so beautiful. Take the story of Jonah, for instance. Jonah, of course, was resistant of God sending him as a prophet to Nineveh because the Ninevites were enemies of Israel and he didn't like that God would love them. And so he resisted and he got on a ship going to not Nineveh. And a storm came because of Israel, of Jonah's disobedience. And so they had he had them throw him overboard because he knew it was his fault. He gets thrown into the water and a big fish swallows him up. He ends up In the fish for three days before the fish throws him out, throws him up out onto land. And then Jonah went to Nineveh. And the story ends by saying many years later, God was going to send another messenger with the same wonderful message. Like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness. But this messenger would be God's own son. He would be called the Word because he himself would be God's message. God's message translated into our own language. Everything God wanted to say to the whole world in a person. And that's the reality of the scripture. That Jesus is the center of the Bible, but not just the center of the Bible, the center of reality. So we read the scripture to meet Jesus, to be shaped by him, to become like him, to do what he did, and to enter into the fullness of life. And here's the beautiful thing. Everyone's invited into the story. Everyone is invited into this cosmic story of redemption, restoration, of life. I don't know where you find yourself here today. Maybe in a place, or maybe this is your first time to church. Maybe this is your first time hearing the Bible talked about this way. Maybe you've not been in church in a long time. Run far away from God. Whatever the case might be, God is inviting you home today. Inviting you into a story. Inviting you into a story of restoration and redemption and forgiveness and life. To go from dead to alive. And if that's you here today, can I just... Encourage you to under your breath sincerely say, Jesus, I give you my life. It's a way of saying, Jesus, I follow you. I want to put you as Lord of my life, the one who directs it. And as a result, we experience the resurrection power of God. And it's this lifelong journey walking with God, walking in the story of God and Jesus right there at the center. If that's you here today and you just made that decision, you just made the most important decision of your life. Wherever you find yourself in your journey, spiritual journey here today, I want to take a moment and pray for each and every one of us. Father, we need you. We need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit, we thank you for the ways that you have orchestrated, not just the writing of the Bible, but the restoration of your world, the restoration of hearts, the restoration of everything that's wrong, that you will one day bring true justice and all will be made right. That there will, in fact, be no death because, Jesus, you defeated death on the cross and showed that to be true in your resurrection. And so, first of all, I pray that all of us would see that more clearly. I pray that each one of us would approach the Bible as it is meant to be approached. In any ways that we've approached it or treated it in the way that it's not supposed to be treated, God, we repent. We thank you that you have given us your word to communicate and show us the word, Jesus. So I pray that as we read the Bible, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that our hearts would be receptive, that our lives and our will would align with yours. So Holy Spirit, would you give us a desire, a hunger to read, to enter, to engage, to allow the scriptures to speak to us and transform us. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.